Well, it, it is a, a blessing just to see all of those folks that are continuing on uh, with discipleship, having brought that team from uh, New Philadelphia so many years ago now. In fact, man, if it's only been 12, I'm, I'm messed up. I think it could be close to 20, man. It's not that? Well, okay. I, I, I was just thinking I was 20 when I came. And, you know, 20 years, so, you know, 40 now. Okay, yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm thrilled that all of y'all uh, are here. And uh, I, I'm excited about the Living Faith Fellowship. You know, the thing that I love about it is, uh, and are you working on that ring? Because it's ringing up here. Uh, is it ringing out there? And, and But you guys prefer that, right? <laughs> Um, I, I just wanted to make sure that you guys could hear that there. I'm not trying to be an idiot. I am an idiot. I'm just not trying to be one right now. Uh, but the thing that I love about the Living Faith Fellowship is we, we come in here tonight and just hear you doing your home folk thing. And man, it just resonates with all of us because we're all uh, like-minded in the fact that our mission is to make disciples and to make them right in the Jerusalem where we are, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And again, it's a joy to be a part of a fellowship that sees that big picture, that what we're doing is to, to go to the uttermost part uh, of the earth. And uh, before, we, before we dive in tonight, could we just pause and and just pray that the Lord would open the eyes of our understanding uh, the way that David talked about it is open thou mine eyes that I may behold do you remember the next word wondrous things out of thy law it's a wondrous book y'all but our our eyes have to be opened to be able to see those wondrous things and uh, so, man, let's just go before the Lord and let him know that we are totally dependent upon him for that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have been able tonight to gather in your name, to be able to, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for those that have worked hard to, to lead us uh, in our worship. And Lord, uh, as, we, as we approach your word tonight, Lord, I, I pray that this will be a significant night and that the eyes of our understanding would be opened, that you would grant enlightenment to us. We, we know it's a supernatural book, and so we, we come to it tonight humbly asking you, to do what only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you know, I guess we all have our favorite book of the Bible. Uh, in terms of the Old Testament, my, my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Ruth. Um, I, it may have been, you know, a minute since you have dove into those four little chapters of the book of Ruth. So could I, could I do something at the beginning here tonight? Could I take 45 seconds to tell you the story of Ruth? Okay, 45 seconds. Somebody time me. Not yet, but okay. 45 seconds. Now, now listen, this is going to be the most important 45 seconds of the entire message. So if you would, work with me. For, do you think you could stay awake for 45 seconds right now before you flake out on me? Okay, so let's all just pull it in together right now for 45 seconds to hear the story of the book of Ruth. Okay, it, it happens like this. Jen, uh, what's her name? Ruth. <laughs> that girl... Okay, now let's start the time. <laughs> Ruth was a, a Gentile 
from a cursed race. Uh, she was a Moabitess, and they were a cursed people in the Old Testament. And Ruth finds herself in a time of famine. But in the midst of that famine, she hears good news from a far land that God had visited his people in Bethlehem in giving them bread. And upon hearing that news, she leaves everything that she holds dear and makes a beeline to partake of that bread in Bethlehem. And when she gets to Bethlehem, she goes to work in a field, the harvest field, of a man who happens to be her Jewish kinsman redeemer. And he sees her in that field. He takes her out of that harvest field to be her, her husband. And they live happily ever after. Ta-da. There's the story of Ruth. Now, the reason that I, I took the time to tell you the story of Ruth is because that story is really incredible. Not just because it's in the Bible and not just because it's historically accurate. The reason that's so significant is that story that I just told you is actually our story. And, and this is the, one of the most incredible things in my estimation about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible somehow has it so together that he can actually take the record of history and use it to teach us New Testament principles and concepts that otherwise would be hard for us to get our head wrapped around. And so what God does is he takes those New Testament principles and concepts and he states them, but then he comes along with his picture book and he puts the picture next to those concepts. And so we could then look at it and say, I see where he's going with this. And we can make those connections because we can see in, in graphic pictures the truth that God has laid out for us. So we've already talked about the picture. Now let me take a second to talk about the New Testament principle that the book of Ruth pictures because let me tell you our story now. You see, all of us were Gentiles from a cursed race. We call it the human race. And all of the people in this room, there was a period of time in our life when we found ourselves in the midst of a famine in our souls. And somebody had the audacity to share the good news with us that the Lord has visited his people by giving them bread in Bethlehem. And upon hearing that news, you know what we did? We turned from everything that we held dear to embrace the bread of life from the city of Bethlehem. And you know what he has us doing right now, y'all? We're working in the harvest field of our Jewish kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem, waiting for him to take us out of the harvest field, take us to the father's house to consummate the marriage where we will forever live happily ever after with him. What about a God that can record history in a fashion like that? And listen, y'all, that is why the book of Ruth is sitting back there in our Old Testament. I'd like to ask you tonight to turn with me to Ruth chapter 2 and to really understand where we're going to be heading in Ruth chapter 2 tonight. It's vital for us to have made that connection that we just talked about, that the big picture of what's happening. But in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth, and as we just saw, the picture of the church 
gets connected with this man, Boaz is his name. He is her Jewish kinsman redeemer. And he is, in the word of God, one of the greatest Old Testament types of the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere in Scripture. But to really understand the passage that we'll be looking at, tonight we'll be looking at Ruth chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And for us to really get it, I need to take you just a little deeper into the story. Okay, you got the big picture. Are you ready to work with me for just a second? I want to make sure that you, by the time we get to chapter 2, that you're really piecing all of this together. So I will tell you, you're going to need to, to listen very carefully and try to grab these little pieces because if you can grab them here, when we get to verse 11 of chapter 2 through verse 13, uh, God shows us just some incredible stuff. But, but to get us there, let me, let me take just a second to, to show you some of the links in the chain, as it were, of what actually brings Ruth to Boaz in chapter 2. And then the first link in the chain, and I think this is where we'll pick up in our notes tonight, the first link in the chain was a famine. And we see that in verse 1. Okay, now I mentioned in the big picture there just a minute ago that Ruth lives in Moab. Again, it's a cursed place. And she has absolutely no idea about this famine that is taking place in Judea. But even though she knows nothing about that, God is going to use that famine to absolutely change Ruth's life. So first of all, a famine. The second link in the chain is a family. Okay, because of that famine that was in Judea, a family from Bethlehem moves to Moab and shortly thereafter moves into Ruth's life. And though this family, though this move that they made to Moab was absolutely a lack of faith and trust in God, though that move was actually a move away from God, and, and though Moab was a place that they had absolutely no business moving to, and though the family that moved there, though their testimony was incredibly dim... It was through that family that Ruth first heard of Jehovah God. And as you can see in verse 2, this family is the family of Elimelech and Naomi. And she marries Elimelech and Naomi's son, Malon. Okay, so there is a famine a family, and then the third link in the chain was a funeral. In fact, there were three of them, and they happened man, just like that, one right after the other. First of all, Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law, died. Then Kylion, her brother-in-law, dies. And then Malon, her husband, dies and and listen i'm quite certain that if you would have walked up to ruth at that point in her life and said man isn't it glorious how god is working in your life right now i'm sure she would have looked at you and thought you were absolutely out of your mind but now listen y'all without that funeral without those funerals Ruth is never going to end up in the place of blessing that God intended for her. And, and then next, the fourth link in the chain, was a fear. Because not long after losing her husband, her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, Listen, man, uh, I, I'm going to be leaving Moab because I've heard that the Lord has visited his people back in my land in Bethlehem. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and partake of that bread. And, and again, as I've mentioned, Moab is a God-forsaken place. 
And the only light that Ruth has had, as dim and as poor as it was, that light was about to go out. And Ruth feared being left alone in the darkness of Moab with all of its idolatry. And as we'll see a little later on in the message, what she does is she renounces all of her association and all of her connection to Moab and to the gods of Moab. And she turns in her life to get to Bethlehem. And so she returns to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, which leads to the final link in the chain that, that brought Ruth to Boaz, and that was a field. And, and this field wasn't just any field. It just happened. And, and that's the way that our King James talks about it. And it was her hap, is the way that it says it. She just happens to go to work in the field of the wealthiest bachelor in Bethlehem, who just happens to be her kinsman, the kinsman of her, her late father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, at this point, Ruth has absolutely no idea of her connection to that man or what this field actually represents, but it is apparent that, that Ruth has gotten herself into the word of God herself, even though she was a Moabitess, the Gentile from the cursed race, and she had become aware that God had told his people in that Old Testament law that when they were gleaning their fields, God told them not to worry about any of the harvest that dropped. Just let it be, he said. And, and, and don't, don't glean the corners of the field. And the reason that God said not to do that is so that foreigners, strangers, foreigners and the poor and widows would be able to come behind those gleaning in the field and have enough to, to survive. And of course, Ruth fits all three of those categories. She is a stranger, she's poor, and she is a widow. And listen, that field that she just happens to be in, and again, Boaz has no clue about who Ruth is, but there comes a day when Ruth or Boaz comes out to his field and he sees somebody he doesn't recognize. And he says to his assistant, Hama, Hama, Hama. That, that's in the Hebrew. Uh, you, you don't detect it in our King James English. Whose damsel is this? And, and, and one of the greatest Old Testament types of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible. Her near kinsman falls head over heels in love with her as soon as he's, his eyes lay, his, he lays eyes on her. And listen, if he would be willing, he could fulfill that principle back in the Old Testament that God gave to the nation of Israel. He could fulfill the principle of the kinsman, listen to it, redeemer and take her to be his bride and restore to her everything that was lost through the death of her first husband. Okay, and tonight, that's where we pick up the story as we come into Ruth chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And, and listen, y'all, God, the master artist, when we come into this, has got his paintbrush out, and what he is actually doing in this passage is giving to us a portrait, an Old Testament portrait of what true discipleship is all about. Can you imagine going to the Old Testament? 
to learn about what we have gathered together this week to, to talk about what true discipleship actually is. Because you, you'll notice in, in verses 11 through 13 of Ruth chapter 2 that our, our Lord shows us through the events that unfolded in Ruth's life, what he shows us is the three components of true discipleship. He shows us in this passage the cost of true discipleship. He shows us the reward of true discipleship. And he shows us the heart of true discipleship. And, and as we dive into the story now, first of all, we're going to look at what she lost. Okay, it was, there were was some things that Ruth was going to have to lose to partake of that bread in Bethlehem. And this is number one in your notes, what Ruth lost. And what, what the Lord shows us here in verse 11 is a, a picture of the cost of discipleship. And I do want to say to you, hey, it's great to come to know the Lord as your Savior. It's a beautiful thing. As we'll talk about, it's a free gift. But there is a cost that's involved if you're ever going to really find yourself as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And again, it's pictured for us in verse 11. See if you can see it as we read it together. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. And what Boaz is talking about here takes us back to what happened in chapter 1 when Ruth turned in her life, or she changed directions in her life. And as we talked about just a, a minute ago, remember now, she had been married to Naomi's son. But like Naomi, she had been widowed. And, and Naomi comes along one day. This is chapter 1 and verse 6. And she says, listen, I'm, I'm going to be leaving Moab. I'm going to get myself back to the homeland. I'm going back to Bethlehem where the bread of life can be found. And listen, when Ruth hears the good news of the bread of life in Bethlehem, verse 7 lets us know that she thinks that she wants to go. She thinks she wants to make the same decision that Naomi made, and she wants to go with her. And her sister-in-law, Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah, her sister-in-law, who had also been widowed, she does the same thing. She thinks that when Naomi says she's heading out, she thinks she wants to go as well. And so do you know what Naomi does? In, in verses 8 through 13, Naomi forces them to count the cost. We're not going to take the time to read verses 8 through 13, but I do want you to notice that Naomi says to Ruth and Orpah in verse 11, why will you go with me? In other words, girls, you really need to think through this thing of doing this because let me, let me tell you girls something. To make this decision is going to mean some major implications in your life. In effect, what she says to them is, do you realize the cross you're going to have to bear if you make this decision? And in verse 8 she says, don't, don't you realize, girls, that by making this decision, you're actually signing up for a life that is totally different from the life that you've known? And, and she's telling these girls, listen, you're from Moab, man. This is your country. 
These are your people. The gods you have worshipped are here. The life that you know, the life that you love is here. And she says, don't you realize that by making this decision that you're going to have to turn from all of that? Don't you understand that leaving here means that you're going to have a totally different future? Don't you realize that from this point on, girls, that from a relational standpoint and from a marital standpoint, it is drastically going to change your life? And what we see in this passage is rather than Naomi trying to encourage her daughters-in-law to come with her, and rather than trying to talk them into the decision, listen, she loves these girls, but she tells them, listen, I think you better stick with what you know. You better stick with who you are. She wants to make sure that they're not making a rash or emotional decision because she understands that, wow, this decision is going to cost them a lot. And so what she does is she forces them to count the cost. And do you realize that everything that Naomi is facing these girls with about this decision to go partake of the bread of Bethlehem, do you understand that it's everything that the bread of life from the city of Bethlehem himself faces his would-be disciples with and causes all of us to consider in terms of the cost of discipleship? In Luke chapter 14 and verse 25, Luke says, And there went great multitudes with him. And let me just say here that for most people in the ministry in the last days, that's the goal. To have great multitudes fill our buildings every Sunday. Having great multitudes equals success. But it becomes obvious that great multitudes wasn't how Jesus measured success. Because what Luke says here in verse 25 after that is he's got these great multitudes that are back here. It says, and he, he turned. So do you see what Luke is saying here? Can you see it in your mind? He, he, he's, he's walking and here's all these throngs of people behind him. And all of a sudden he says, hold up. And he turns around. And Luke says, and he turned and said unto them, Verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And do you see it? Jesus says here the same basic thing that Naomi said to Ruth and Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> he, Orpah, for the record. And he says, hey, do you realize that by becoming my true disciple, that it's going to impact every relationship in your life including the relationship that you have with yourself and Jesus says so listen you need to count the cost of whether you think a relationship with me is more important than every other relationship in your life and again including the relationship that you have with yourself. And in verse 27, he adds, and whosoever doth not bear his cross 
and come after me cannot be my disciple. And again, it's no different than what Naomi said to Ruth and Orpah. What Jesus says here is, do you realize that by following me, it's going to mean that you have to be willing to sacrifice everything you've arranged in your life to bring you happiness and comfort? And again, I want to say, y'all, salvation is a free gift. Hallelujah to you. But Jesus wants to make sure that all of us that have gathered this week to talk about discipleship, that we understand that there is a cost to discipleship. And Jesus says down in verse 33, so likewise, same chapter. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not, all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now, now listen, y'all, we're going to talk more about this thing of the cost of discipleship this, this week in the morning session. But I, I, I wanted to just, in this picture, I, I, in fact, I, all I was doing just following the script in the picture, okay? And, and it's well worth talking about. We don't have time to exhaust all of this tonight. But I do want you to see in verse 28 of this same chapter, Jesus likens this thing of discipleship. We, we've had the illustration tonight of the relay race, which is a beautiful one, 2 Timothy 2.2. But here in verse 28... Jesus likens this thing of discipleship to building a tower. And he says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? And in the picture book, that's exactly what Naomi is trying to do with Ruth, with Ruth and Orpah. And to Orpah's credit, if you will, look at Ruth chapter 1 and verse 14. Orpah counts the cost. After hearing what Naomi has said it's going to cost, she says, man, thank you very kindly for sharing that with me. And you know what, Naomi, I, I think you're right. I think I'm going to stick with what I know. I think I'm going to stick with who I am. I'm going to stick with what makes me happy. I'm going to stick with what makes me comfortable. And what it says in verse 14 is she kissed her mother-in-law. And we never see her again. But Ruth, on the other hand, in verse 16, and this is why she is the perfect picture of true discipleship. She says, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy, thy God, my God. Have you ever counted the cost of discipleship? Have you ever been able to actually say that to the Lord? And listen, knowing full well what it would mean that she was going to lose. And at this point, not knowing anything that it would mean that she would gain. She makes the decision that we now know would not only change the course and direction of her life, but listen, y'all would change the course and direction of history. Because do you understand what happens with Ruth? She becomes in that line that is going to give birth to the Messiah because she counted the cost. But again, she knows nothing of that. Now, if she would have known, well, sure she would have. She makes this decision. 
knowing nothing that she's going to gain from making it. So first of all, we see what Ruth lost, and God uses her to paint a, an incredible picture of the cost of discipleship. And then secondly, we see what Ruth found. What Ruth found, and, and now God uses her to paint a graphic picture of the reward of discipleship. Would you look back at verse 11 again? Boaz says to her, It, it hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law. Listen to this now. Since the death of thine husband. And that little phrase right there. God just takes out that paintbrush once again. And he's painting here another incredible picture through Ruth of a, a New Testament truth that's actually found for us in Romans chapter 7. Now again, work with me, y'all. This is just an incredible way that God shows you about how he thinks. We, we come into Romans chapter 7, and I'll tell you, the first six verses are, of Romans chapter 7 are a little bit difficult to get your head wrapped around. But now listen, if you've got the picture book to compare it with, it's not really difficult at all. So, so would you look with me at verse 1 of, of Romans chapter 7 where Paul writes, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth, and I think we all get this. This is just a very general principle that has to do really with any kind of law. The law is only binding on the living. If, if you take me out in the parking lot tonight and you kill me, you throw me in your trunk and you take me to some place where there, it's posted no trespassing and you throw me over the fence and they come and find my cold dead body they're not going to run me down to the station, prop me up in a chair, and throw the book at me. Because no trespassing doesn't have anything to do with people who are not alive. And okay, so that's the principle. <laughs> you murderers. Okay, so having that general principle in verse 1, he, he's going to apply that same principle to marriage. Okay, track with it now. In verse 2, Paul says, for the woman, don't forget the picture book, for the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. And, and Paul is trying to get us to see that the laws that govern marriage are binding only as long as the partners are, are alive. And again, we certainly get that, right? Okay, a, a woman doesn't remain bound to her husband in the bond of marriage if he's dead. Paul continues on in verse 3. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. And of course, the point is, in marriage, once a husband dies, that widow is no longer bound to the law of marriage, but she is free then to remarry. And again, we all understand that. That's not hard to understand. And you see, that's exactly what Paul is trying to to do in this passage he's trying to pull out some things that he knows that we can relate to because he's wanting to borrow those principles to teach us about something that isn't as easy to understand because do you understand in romans chapter 7 the subject here is not really marriage the subject is salvation he's just showing us how the laws of marriage relate to salvation 
And that's why verse 4 begins, Wherefore, my brethren, in other words, let me tell you how that relates to you. He's saying, you know how it is with any law, whether it be marriage or any judicial system, that when a death happens, that law is no longer binding. He says, okay, so you get that? Okay, well, let me show you how that applies to you. Because Paul says, you too were bound by a law. And it was a very binding law, y'all. Because it was the law of God. And you and I were bound to it. And the only thing that could free us from it was a death. And look at what he says in verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ that ye should be married to another. Okay, don't miss what he's saying here. What he's saying is, listen, all of us were sinners. And according to the law of God, we were sentenced to die. But what happened? God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know who he was? He was God in a human body. And through the body of Christ, he suffered the penalty of death. 1 Peter 2.24 says, speaking of Christ, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. You see, what happened is through his body, he suffered the penalty of death. And the moment that we call on the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 says that we were baptized into Jesus Christ because we were baptized into his what? Into his death. And of course, the baptism that he's talking about here isn't water baptism at all. He's talking about what water baptism pictures, which is the baptism of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, which of course is the baptism of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized or immersed or placed into one body. And that body who is it y'all it's the body of christ right okay so do, do you see what he's saying here christ through his body suffered the penalty of death that the law demanded and through our salvation the spirit of god placed us into christ's death so that we died and now because of that, look back at verse 4 of Romans chapter 7. Because of that, we are dead to the law by the body of Christ. In other words, because we were placed into Christ's death, we are freed from our marriage to the law in the same exact way that a widow is freed from her marriage to her former husband. And just like that widow, continue on in verse 4, we are free to be married to another. Another what? Another husband. And who would that be? He tells us, even to him that is raised from the dead. Do you remember what Paul wrote to those believers that he had won to Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2? He, he said, for I have espoused you to one, what? One husband 
The New Testament terminology for believers in Christ is that we are his bride and he is our husband or our bridegroom. And would you look at the reason for our marriage to Christ at the end of verse 4? He says that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And and sure, the the fruit that he's talking about here is most definitely the fruit of a holy, righteous life. But let me just ask you something. What kind of fruit do husbands and wives bring forth, y'all? Listen, through the intimacy of the relationship of marriage, husbands and wives bring forth children. And listen, y'all, that's why we have been espoused to our one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should bring forth fruit unto God, that we should bring forth spiritual children. And, And can you see how Ruth, through Ruth, God is painting a picture of our marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ that he's talking about here in Romans chapter 7? Because let me, let me take you back to the picture now. Remember, when the story of Ruth begins, as we talked about, she's a member of a cursed race. And just like Romans chapter 7 and verse 2 talks about, at that point in the story, she is married to Malon. She is a woman which hath an husband and is bound to him so long as he liveth. When all the while, Boaz is the one person who could provide for her what nobody else on this planet could possibly provide for her. The only problem is she wasn't married to Boaz. She was married to another She is bound by the law to another. But do you remember what happened in the story? Malon, what? He died. So, Ruth, as the end of Romans chapter 7 and verse 2 says, is loosed from the law of her husband. And so you see how Ruth is a a perfect picture of everything God is wanting us to see about the church here in Romans chapter 7? Because, listen, every last one of us in this room tonight, y'all, we were all members of that cursed race. And all of us were married to the law. We were one flesh with that thing. We were bound by it, and we were under its penalty. But there was a death, and through that death, we are no longer bound to the law, making us free to remarry, making us free to marry our Boaz, our Jewish kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and the only one who could provide for us what nobody else on this planet could ever provide for us, our redemption. Hallelujah. And all the people in the front rows that are getting spit on are saying, okay, man. They weren't clapping, man. They were just waving the spit. Okay, listen, y'all, that is the unbelievable reward of discipleship. We have been made free from our marriage to the law to marry another. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And would you look back at Ruth chapter 2 and verse 11? And how the Holy Spirit describes the intimacy of that relationship. You see, in in marriage, the way that it works is a young woman leaves her father and her mother. The most dear people in the world to her. And she leaves 
all she has ever known, all that she's ever trusted, all that she has found security in, all of her life. But listen, she's willing to do that. She's willing to leave all of that for the reward of being able to cleave to her husband. And God designed that relationship so that it could have perfect unity and perfect oneness and complete intimacy. And again, that's the reward of marriage. And you see, that's exactly the way that he has designed our relationship with Christ. We come to the place in our relationship with the Lord, and it could be that this week is going to be that time for some of the people that are in this room. But we come to a place in our relationship with the Lord where we leave our father and our mother, and we leave all that we've ever known, all that we've ever trusted, all that we've ever found security in all of our life, and we make a decision to cleave to our one husband. And we trust him. And we focus on knowing him. And for the rest of our lives, we make the calculated decision that we're going to find our security in him and we find perfect unity and perfect oneness and complete intimacy and we finally come to the place in our christian life of finding the joy of what it really means to be in christ and for christ to be in us and again, that's, that's the reward of our marriage to Christ. It's the reward of true discipleship. Boaz says to Ruth, again, a picture of the church in verse 12. Boaz says to her, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. And interestingly enough, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jesus, who at this point in Matthew 23, in the midst of his ministry, has already been rejected by the Jews. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. But buddy, Ruth would. That poor, Gentile widow and member of a cursed race, she heard good news that there was bread in Bethlehem and she believed that message and she turned her back on her former life and she trusted God and she took up her cross. And you know what she found? The intimacy of a relationship with God that allowed her in the midst of all the calamities of her life to nestle up right up under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. But, I, but I, 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 want, I want to make sure that you notice in verse 12 that Boaz is talking about her being recompensed and receiving a full reward. Watch this now. For her, her work. And again, I, I, I'll say it. The greatest reward that you and I will ever receive is the reward of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And being able to have an intimate, personal, 
love relationship with him. But just like Ruth in verse 10, we came into that relationship with him by grace. The same way that Ruth had found grace in the eyes of Boaz. It had nothing to do with what she did. It was by grace. But what Boaz is talking about in verse 12 is Ruth being recompensed and Ruth receiving a full reward because of the work that she had done as he found her gleaning in his field. And may I remind you tonight that, again, the, the most blessed relationship that we have is the fact that Christ has rewarded us with a relationship of an intimate, personal love relationship with Him. And we can have that relationship now. And the reason we have it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by His grace, He has saved us. But there is coming a day of recompense. And it's going to be in the not too distant future and on that day if we expect to receive a full reward I can assure you it's gonna be because the intimacy of our relationship with Christ has caused us to get up off of our blessed assurance and in obedience to the desire of our husband's heart he found us in the same place that Boaz found Ruth, out gleaning, laboring from morning till evening in his harvest field. And listen, the same way that Boaz wanted to make sure that his bride-to-be was recompensed and fully rewarded, let me assure you, that the reward of discipleship is that your kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem is going to make sure at the judgment seat of Christ that you are fully recompensed and you are fully rewarded for the work that you have done after receiving the grace that brought you into that relationship at the beginning. And oh yeah... There were certainly some things that Ruth lost in coming to Bethlehem. There were definitely some costs involved. But buddy, they were nothing compared to the reward that she would find there. But you'll notice in verse 13 that there was still something that Ruth wanted. Okay, we've seen what Ruth lost, and God showed us the cost of discipleship. We, we saw what Ruth found, and God showed us the reward of discipleship. And, and now, number three, this is what Ruth wanted. And our Lord shows us here the heart of true discipleship. Would you look with me at verse 13? Then she said, and of course that's Ruth speaking to Boaz. Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord. For that thou comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like one of thine handmaids. Now, track with this, okay, because we have now put your tray tables up and get your seats in their upright and locked position. We're, we're making our descent right now. But what's interesting here, y'all, don't miss this, is that this word favor in verse 13, it just happens to be the same word back in verse 10 that was translated grace now think about that for just a second and you see god does things like that in our king james bible because listen this bible serves as its own lexicon 
It's his own dictionary. And, and so God will do things like that. He'll take that same Hebrew word and translate it this way so that we don't have to go outside of the Bible to understand the Bible, okay? And, and, and so he, he does cool things like that. But now listen, making that connection allows us to see something else. Okay, now again, pull it in. Because you see, in verse 10, Ruth acknowledges that she has already found grace in Boaz and she's acknowledged that he has taken knowledge of her and in verse 13 Ruth even identifies how he had done that she, she says that he had comforted her and that he had spoken friendly to her so so she's already had extended to her that favor or that grace to her so do you know what she's actually asking for in verse 13 she's asking for more grace and in asking for more grace you know what she does she shows us the heart of true discipleship because listen, y'all, a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though by grace we have received an intimate personal relationship with him, the heart of a true disciple is always wanting that relationship to grow deeper and to become more intimate. Verse 13 shows us that Ruth wasn't satisfied to stay where she was in a relationship with Boaz. There was something deep down in her heart that caused her to want to know the fullness of the relationship in which she had already found grace. And you see, th this is why we can just go through all of those great people in the Word of God. That's why Moses, though he had seen God in so many different ways, he had seen him in the burning bush, he had seen the flaming finger of God etch the Ten Commandments into the tables of stone, and he had seen him in all kinds of other ways, and yet what you find is that he just keeps going back to the mountain. Exodus 33 and verse 18, he says, I beseech thee, I beg you, God, Show me thy glory. I want more. More grace. It's what caused Jacob in Genesis 32 and verse 26 to cry out to God, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. It's why we hear Paul cry out in Philippians 3.10, a man who knew Christ like no other person has ever known him, a man so intimate and personal with Christ, and yet what you hear is the cry of his heart in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, oh, that I may know him. It's why you hear David, the man after God's own heart, say in Psalm 17 and verse 15, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And what is implied is, and not until then. And here is Ruth, a picture of the church, picturing the true heart of discipleship. And she says in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 13, I know you've already extended your grace to me, but let me find favor in thy sight, or let me find more grace. Do you remember how the New Testament tells us that we receive more grace, y'all? James chapter 4 and verse 6 tells us that it's it's by never allowing ourselves to become proud. James says that God resisteth, resisteth the proud, but giveth 
more grace to the humble. And, and listen, that's exactly what Ruth was. Would you look at the end of verse 13? She says, show me more grace. Though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. You know what? Ruth never forgot who she was. She never allowed herself as a Gentile, as Romans 11.25 says, to become wise in her own conceit. And may I say to my Gentile brothers and sisters tonight, may we, in all humility, never forget who we are, never forget the grace that brought us into our relationship with Christ. Never forget that he has left us to glean in his harvest field until he calls us out of that harvest field and takes us to the father's house to consummate our marriage to him. And until then, may we never Allow ourselves to be satisfied until we awake with his likeness. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, Pastor James.